Hello and welcome to another episode of The Narrative Labyrinth, where we discuss film, TV, literature and game with in-depth review, discussion and analysis. I'm your host Rachel and today I'm joined by two guests who are here to talk about syndication streaming and why it all matters in the age of global connectivity. Please can you welcome... Hello, I'm Alistair Stewart. I'm a Hugo-nominated non-fiction writer and I produce a weekly pop culture newsletter called The Full Lid. And I'm Marguerite Kenner. Uh, together, Alistair and I co-own The Escape Artist, which is the oldest running science fiction and genre family podcasts. Thank you both so much for coming on. Um, it's amazing to have you both here streaming syndication. What is syndication? What does it mean to you? I actually have two responses to this. The first one is syndication is kind of TV show Valhalla. It's it's the the kind of eternal rest home that a show goes to once it gets to a large enough size. And also, I'm of a generation that was taught that if enough episodes of a show were produced to get to syndication, then there was a reasonable chance the show would continue. Or in some cases, if not quite enough episodes were made, there was a case that could be made by the networks to produce enough to get it to syndication, wherein it would start to pay for itself. So it's a concept which is very closely wrapped up with grassroots fan activism in a lot of the, the encounters I've had with it. Especially in the genre space, I would imagine, because when I think of syndication, I think of mainstream television that I think your description of Valhalla is 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 a really good uh. one. It's the idea that a show has, through the inexorable passage of time, <laughs> reached a status where it can live forever. Syndication is a component of the, the the bundle of sticks that is copyright. So it's the the ability to exploit a particular type of right in a TV show. Um, in the olden days, in the before times of streaming, syndication was what streaming is now. It's, I can pull up a show um, on terrestrial TV pretty much at any time, or, you know, there's a, there's a reasonable expectation that this show will always be available at some particular time. Yeah. So it, it's almost like a, like an archive or a way of saying this is a big enough TV show and there's enough of it now that it's going to have the designated Wednesday at two slot forever on whatever terrestrial network we're going to look at. It. I think it was channel five in the UK, which I'm not sure I've ever told you about was, yeah. is called Channel 5 because it's literally the fifth terrestrial TV channel in the country. We're so imaginative with our We're TV We're so names. imaginative over here. As see, you see what, what bothers me is when you start doing that with the radio channels. I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. They came uh, first. They did. So the TV channels copied the, oh, we are TV too. Yes, basically. Okay. Yeah. Bless. Uh, um, I think it was Channel 5 who for several years had the, if it's between two and five on a weekday, then CSI is happening. It doesn't matter which one it is, because when we get to the end, we're just going to go back to the start. Syndication is what you rely on when you're a kid who's homesick from school, right? You're like, okay, we've passed the tele we've passed the magical hour of cartoons in the morning, and the game shows are over, and now there's a couple of hours of TV they have to fill, fill before the news and the primetime stuff, and that is what syndicated TV <laughs> is. That's where all your Definitely. reruns live forever. And in the UK, we call that E4. Um <laughs> Uh, oh, real laugh, real pain. Um, it's true, though. Uh, so I think in the UK, we've we've done it slightly differently um, in the past. Our, our daytime TV shows are terrible. 
mm-hmm. but beloved. And I say this as someone that worked um, on daytime television in the UK um, uh, when when in the in the heady days of television. Um, and we do have a love for our daytime television. Like there's a very very set rotor, and if you if you mess with that, then then woe betide. People, you get angry letters, and now you get angry tweets. But we do have channels, particularly in the UK, like the aforementioned Channel Five and E4 that are basically syndication stations at this point. Mm-hmm. Certainly during the daytime, um, other than those few hours of prime time um, in the evening, everything is is a synd- is a syndicated show. And and it used to be that that was kind of like the goal of a television show was to grow to a size where it would get a syndication order and therefore it would, you know, live forever. And then there's that point you made about how in the genre space, it became almost a finish line about, you know, if there was enough groundswell behind a show, you could get energy behind it to reach the syndication finish line. I I don't have this information at hand, but if I remember correctly, the original Star Trek was cancelled after every season. And it was completely saved by syndication and fan love every time. There you mm-hmm. go. Yep, perfect example. And I think that's uh, quite common for a lot of particularly science fiction because I think it's I think it's fair to say we are more science fiction orientated as an order as 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 hosts here, um, or at least that's where where we may have um, some 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 knowledge. Um, and I think it's it's very fair to say that a lot of science fiction shows lived and died by their syndication or their lack of syndication. But also things like um, the original series of Doctor Who uh, saw a lot of reruns and a lot of syndication uh, to an international audience. And I don't think we'd have this massive brand of Doctor Who that we have now if it hadn't been so heavily syndicated in the 70s and in the 80s. It never would have come to the US if it hadn't been, because in the US, as a child of the 80s, um, the way that we got to see Doctor Who was on the public broadcasting stations in the US that would pick it up and run it at just completely unseasonable hours to our young age. <laughs> but that's how we watched Doctor Who, you know? It was it was literally Saturday night at 11 p.m. we would get an episode. I can't, like, it's such a mainstay of our staple Saturday evenings. I think they tried to put it on Sunday evening once and it nearly caused a riot in the UK. But it's such <laughs> a standard Saturday evening show. Um like it has a very, it has that set kind of time slot between kind of seven and nine. It'll be on at some point in that space for the new season. Um, but we don't get a huge amount of reruns on our terrestrial television um, of Doctor Who, interestingly. This will date me horribly, but you mentioning that has actually reminded me of something really interesting. When I was growing up, there was a, a very prestige, prestigious BBC um, thriller called Edge of Darkness, which is now tainted two different ways. Firstly, the fact that the soundtrack, which at the time was great, was that was uh, produced by well-known terrible opinion haver Eric Clapton, and that um, a few years ago there was a terrible U.S. action movie remake of it starring un- inconceivably terrible human Mel Gibson. But the actual original show is really strange and interesting and distinctly science fiction in a couple of spots, and it was so popular and so talked about that in an unprecedented move I don't think has been repeated, the BBC immediately rescheduled it to be repeated again in two-hour chunks after it had finished, and then again across a weekend in three-hour chunks. That's that's like cinema listings, isn't it? Like, we're just going to keep repeating this same thing. You want to see it, here it is. 
Exactly. It's it, it, it's also that kind of interesting space in, I mean, I, I can't wait to get 30, 40 years in the future and to start reading like the, the, the history studies that go into the evolution of broadcast television and and streaming because we went from this period of time of you know live tv was where it's at it's what you had it's what you got and then syndication started to exist and the rerun concept came in and then you started to get the idea of even before on demand services you had the plus ones you know it would run and then it would run at an hour offset or a two hour offset so you had choices and then you know we had Oh, I can't even remember what they're called anymore. Those boxes where you would record TV and TiVos. TiVos. Yep, exactly. We had the TiVo era, and now, now we have streaming, where our expectations as an audience are that I can watch the whole thing of anything anytime I want it, and just the absolute ripples that has caused, not only just viewing experience but creation experience you were talking before about you know how many episodes do you have to get to to syndication it used to be 100 right yeah used to uh, 100 episodes was the magic number these days it's closer to it's like in the 80s and that's because season order yeah and now that's because season orders have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller because you know uh, a season of tv used to be 20 five 26 26, episodes and now you know a big tv show something designed for terrestrial broadcast like like a csi or an anensis or something like that is in the you know high teens or low 20s and so it's still that kind of magic four seasons threshold but the size of the seasons has changed and then you look at you know you, you and that's kind of how they were packaged and sold because they had you know, Nielsen rating periods and you had to fill the whole rating period or you had to fill the season before the different breaks. The, I mean, the idea of the summer blockbuster is barely clinging on, but the idea of the summer rerun season is completely I, That is such gone. an unfathomable concept to it's me now that you'd have a rerun summer season. Yeah. I mean, and when we, when I was younger, certainly in the summer, it was like, all I'm going to get is reruns. You know, it, you got excited in the autumn because not only were you going back to school or whatever, but that's when the new shows would start their new seasons all at the same time. And the summer was just all about what's on syndication Mm -hmm. and what's being rebroadcast. And now, I mean, they're, the witcher season two good example is dropping what december 17th it's like specifically designed to its release is now specifically the when is everybody on christmas vacation and home and want something (laughs) new to watch we're gonna grab that audience right just much more flexible in terms of release and not to mention season size and episode length can be variable you're no longer stuck to the 60 minute slots everything has changed it's interesting too that that's had an impact on the creative side of things um john rogers the uh co-creator of leverage which is a show that's actually just returned after i think 12 (laughs) years away um has talks a lot about how he has a post-it note on top of every whiteboard in his office now which reads remember you're in the miniseries business and across the last five or six years, as streaming has exploded, the expectation that your show is going to run seven years and that's a success has completely disappeared. Your show is a success if it runs three or four, or if it runs three 
and a streaming network picks it up, as has recently happened with Manifest. Mm -hmm. And that's had some really interesting impacts on what can be done. Rogers talks a lot about how the procedural episode, the um, the, to use Star Trek as an obvious example, the, there's something weird on this planet. Let's go poke it. Oh, type of story, which is done in one episode, is now largely gone. And weirdly, it's now on the way back because that's exactly what Strange New Worlds, the new Trek show, is going to do next year. But do you think it's going to work? Absolutely. Because uh, I'm... I am belligerently enthusiastic about modern Trek because they've done such a great job of appealing to wildly different audiences within the same tent. And generations of audiences. It's it's what I call the Pixar principle because Pixar movies were kind of the first time this concept became encapsulated to me. The idea that you are writing for multiple ages and generations of audience at the same time. The fact that a Pixar movie is ostensibly an animated movie for children but it's part of its enduring charm to widespread audiences is that it's got jokes for adults or references or easter eggs you know it, it has its way of of communicating to different audiences at once and i think you're absolutely right contemporary trek has taken that to a, I, we could spend an hour and a half talking about the glory that is lower decks all in a, by itself oh yes but but that's a really interesting question about you know we've come full circle back to the episodic approach and i think it's a great experiment that paramount is conducting i think it's going to succeed and i think the reason it's going to succeed is two points one we've now become and accepted as the norm, the anything I want on demand at a time. Mm -hmm. And two, we haven't been able to get away from that. I mean, that's what we've all relied on in the last 18 months. The only forms of entertainment in the entire COVID period that have increased are on-demand services, mm -hmm. whether that's streaming video or podcasts. Those are the yeah. two. Um, and now we've had a year and a half of that solid. And I think collectively our entertainment palette is looking for a break. Just like MMO gaming got really, really big for a while and then died off, people are looking for casual viewing experiences. They're looking for the fortnights. The fortnights of television is what you're saying. Exactly. Oh, yeah. We're looking for casual gaming and television. And do you think that's a direct result of the pandemic or do you think that's um, also partly related to the complete oversaturation that we have of media um, over the last five years with all these streaming services plus terrestrial plus cable? I think I think it's the two of them. I think you've got kind of a perfect storm situation where even without COVID, I think we would have reached the point where it's like, OK, well, just I mean, talking about the stress involved with the spoiler phenomenon of like, oh God, I have to rush and watch this TV show, even though it's broad, you know, even though it's being made live at 1 a.m. my time, because if I get on Twitter tomorrow morning and I haven't seen the episode, it's going to completely spoil it for me. We've had so much of that in really big television and movie production lately that the idea of a done in one or something that is more casual, I think has a lot of appeal to people who still want to consume entertainment like this but who, who don't want like the major arcing plot that they've been building for three years to be completely ruined because they dared to sleep one night. <laughs> I mean, I think that's, 
a really fascinating point and something that um, I think is massively uh, reflective of our, of our, our mass globalisation. Um, but also where syndication potentially is falling down, um, certainly with streaming and, again, based in the UK, um, the big American shows are eight hours, 14 hours behind sometimes. You know, we are uh, late. Um, and there's been several occasions where you know that you are going to find the answer out just by having the audacity to wake up in the morning and look at your phone or look at Twitter or or other social media of your choice or go into the office or the school or whatever and someone else is going to have had the chance to see it or has read a spoiler or there's a blog about it. Um, and that happens, I think you get more used to it maybe um, in a country that is not necessarily the main production house for those big shows not saying mm-hmm. that we don't have our own big shows um but you know i'm thinking particularly like the uh, the game of thrones the walking deads um other big big blockbuster television you know event television as it yeah. were yeah. um and that's not saying that we don't have our own again modern doctor who you could see as a blockbuster piece of television absolutely um, but there's a lot less audience here than there is around the world there's less chance I think not the same that it doesn't happen I think it's less likely but I think a lot of where that happens with the UK audience is a different type of TV it's it's strictly it's bake-off it's more of the like competition style shows than it is drama I think our drama is much shorter I mean we do a lot of drama um six eight episodes is 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 i'd say kind of our drama length mm-hmm. a lot of the time it's three or four episodes and actually um particularly thinking of the way channel four or itv might do their drama is they'll do it over a week so it'll be yeah. three or four hour-long episodes in that week channel four are really good at doing that so it's actually a movie split into four sections or three mm-hmm. sections or whatever um so you're not waking waiting a whole week for the next part of that drama and I think that's proven to be quite effective for our for our UK palette. Um, but again, these are not the kind of shows that are necessarily going to be at risk of spoilers. You know, they're not um, they necessarily have that that mass market syndication to America appeal. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, the shows we do, I know Doctor Who is shown at exactly the same TX time in America and the UK. Mm-hmm. All right, that's five a.m. for you guys in America, but it is. It is on at the same time. That option is available. Um, and I think we're seeing more and more of that. I think particularly Game of Thrones did this, um, certainly here in the UK, on possibly the worst streaming site ever created, <laughs> Now TV. Um, if you've never had the pleasure of Now TV, it's run by Sky, and it just doesn't work. It has never worked. Um, it's had... Uh, uh, yeah, that's a massive personal bias in that. Um, but it is definitely one of the worst streaming platforms available in the UK at the moment. But we don't have Hulu um, and we don't have HBO Max. Um, and a lot of those shows that, that premiere over there uh, do end up on Now TV and Sky. For example, um, The Expanse, it took how long? Four months, five months? Closer to eight. For the seasons of The Expanse to come to the UK versus the US. Like they were getting ready for season two and we hadn't even had season one, I think. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that happens a lot. There's a lot of shows. Um, the current season of um, American Horror Story has yeah. finished airing in America and it's still not here in the UK. Trying to avoid spoilers on something for that long 
is difficult. You know, yeah. that's that's not just, oh, I won't look at my phone. For, you know, I'll, I'll put a word blocker on for the work day. That's months before you can actually access something that you're maybe really into or following. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'd say, well, I say pre Disney Plus's existence, but actually Disney Plus is exactly the same. Yeah. Uh, the new series of The Simpsons is currently not available in the UK, but has finished in America. Uh, Owl House, yep. uh, Fox shows. There's lots and lots of shows that just are not yet available in this country. And I'm sure other countries in the world as well. Um, but from personal experience. And what do you do at that point? What do you do when you know the show you wish to consume is not yet available to you? How well, do you just avoid it? Well, <laughs> or do you not avoid it? Well, <laughs> okay, you are asking this question to one culture journalist and one lawyer. <laughs> so we have very different responses to this question because I think the kind of mainstream response is you get your VPN blocker or you result to piracy or you find a friend or, I mean, in the old days, we burned other DVDs and things like that. I was once mailed Babylon 5 season 2 on seven VHS tapes. <laughs> Someone once recorded me the latest, that uh, must have been season 6 of Buffy on VHS off Sky and gave it to me at school every day so I could watch it. That's yep. amazing. Like every week. But, that but, is, that's so, dedication. But that solution is is exactly the same. It's it's the gap that exists between the realities of commercial consumption and the legalities of terrestrial broadcast and international copyright law. Because it is very difficult to explain to someone who's like, but I can pull up all of Doctor Who on demand on my service here from the US. Why can't I watch it live? The studios have very little interest in educating people about why um, and, and the, the reasons for that have to do with how the production of television is structured financially. Because, I mean, look at the Scarlett Johansson lawsuit about Black Widow. Oh, fascinating. Right? That lawsuit is all about the fact that that deal was structured as a normal cinematic release movie so people made their movies at different layers of when those rights were rolled out across the world and disney made the decision to jump a track and skip one of the you know big chunks of how lots of people in the hollywood industry including actors get compensated for their work with 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 the order of operations it used to be called the cascade you know you'd make a major movie it would release in the cinemas and then it would go to dvd or or video sales and then it would go to the networks who would pick it up and run it as reruns now we have direct to streaming we have streaming as a model i mean when was the last time any of us bought physical discs at first instance for engaging with a piece of work you know the way that audiences can and prefer to consume this material is completely now at odds with how it's structured for people to make money and what the law says you can and cannot do which means consumers are unfortunately stuck in the middle if you have a streaming service that provides the the content that you want great if the streaming service provides the content that you want in a different 
country, there are lots of third-party providers who help with those things, which is ultimately a form of piracy. Absolutely. So I, I'm really anti-piracy as someone that works uh, in the industry. Obviously, what pays me is not illegally pirating it off the internet. That's actually people legally watching it and consuming that content. But even I get frustrated as someone who, who works in the creation end of this industry with the fact that you cannot access um, stuff when it is the popular and, and cultural zeitgeist of the time. Yeah, when, when you do not provide a legal means of, of consumption to a, a portion of your audience, that audience isn't going to sit and wait. They're going to find a way and that, and that studio loses that income. There's a really interesting side issue to that, which is um, at the start of the pandemic, a lot of doors were thrown open for journalists. There was a lot of, oh, God, um, do you want a digital screener of this? You know, what can we do to help put eyes on things? And that has not only stopped happening, but the longstanding accessibility issue for journalists outside. And I'm sorry, this is going to sound like I'm plumbing on a soapbox, and I'm honestly not outside the 250 or so people based in London is actually worse than it was before the pandemic at this point. Um, I can, I mean, the best example I can give you is there's a site that I work for from time to time, which gets pretty solid to very good figures, has very good relationships with every major studio. And they sat and watched as every other site near enough ran reviews of Star Wars Visions off press links three weeks before they did. And when they were finally, when they finally asked what this was, this is, we're really sorry. It was actually came down to metrics and it came down to, if you had this many clicks or this many impressions, you got a key. If you didn't, you didn't. And that in my mind sits very closely next to a tweet from a, a female film reviewer based in London who, and this image honestly haunts my dreams who took a photo of the, the queue for the press screening of Captain Marvel that she was in. And not only could all 40 of the guys in that queue plausibly be my older brother, but multiples of them were openly talking about how this was not the first press screening for Captain Marvel they'd had. So the accessibility issue is one it's which... It's almost reactionary. It's yeah. almost, well, we had to stretch to deal with this in a COVID situation. And, and of course, disability activists rightly pointed out, um, excuse me, we've been working for this for decades. Now, all of a sudden you can do exactly. it. But now we've almost reached this reactionary phase where everybody's like, okay, well, it's done here. We're going back and, and we didn't like it. So we're going to make you suffer for it. And I, I think you see that cascading into some of the rights positions as well, especially when you're taking about talking about like, um, mainstream American entertainment and, and how it gets out to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. We're at kind of what I would call the first ripple of that pond because we're in the UK. And so there tends to be more overlap about how we can access those things. But there's, there's still really big things. I mean, Leverage Redemption took forever to come to the UK because it was going through a new streaming service that had no pickup in the UK. And, uh, and in fact, has yet to. It will launch formally over here on the 22nd. Right. And, and that's, I mean, how late is that compared to its American release? Four months? Four months. Five? Which is an eternity in a pandemic. Yeah. Um, and not only in, in a pandemic, in a but in a, world. and in a news cycle. And in a, I mean, 
I don't have enough information to have this conversation, but I would be fascinated to see how the metrics by which success is being judged have changed over the years. I mean, we saw that great article going around about how much money Netflix spends on making its key art for all of its shows because of, you know, the data it has that people only spend 1.8 seconds picking which episode they want to work. But I mean, does Nilsson's an industry still exist? I don't even know. How would you judge it? I, I have no idea. That's I, I'm I'm equally fascinated, um, and I'm very I'm excited for the next five years when that is properly picked apart, analysed, and a conclusion is made. But um, you were saying about review screenings. Um, what I find really interesting in the world of theatre, uh, particularly in the northwest, um, is they are now stopping um, press nights and uh, free reviewer tickets. Um, based on the fact that we don't want you to write about us and our performance um, just for clicks on your websites. And these are the same services that don't have... So so for folks outside of the UK who don't know, it's very common here in the UK for national theater to be broadcast in cinemas. You can, you can go and buy a movie, movie theater ticket seat and watch, uh, for example, James McAvoy performing Cyrano on the stage in London. Um, But what, what's for a while, uh, you know, it, it took the pandemic to make the national theater actually make all those recordings of that archive available. And now they're gone again. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, even if they were pay gated, they would, that would at least present an option, but they've stopped doing it. It, it, and, and it makes me go, why? So a mid a mid sized theatre uh, local uh, to me in in, in Manchester, great theatre, um, was doing a production of Rent that got um, completely smushed by the pandemic. Um, and when stuff started to open again in those probably about a year ago, you know, when we were starting to get a bit excited that it might be over and it was nowhere near over, mm-hmm. um, they actually did it all virtually. They um, did virtual tickets where you could buy tickets and watch it online. Um, but they limited those tickets, and it was only a live broadcast. You couldn't buy it or keep it or own it you were literally paying to watch it as you would in a theater but what was really interesting is the amount they charged for those tickets so a standard ticket to their performance is 35 quid so what 40 ish dollars 45 dollars yeah yeah pretty standard price for a theater ticket at that theater at that level of show their online viewing tickets which is one camera um at one point pointed at the stage where the actors are was £15 a ticket, so about $20 a ticket. Yeah, so like a movie theatre ticket almost. Yeah, but there was a lot of outcry from people saying that it was really expensive when they could sell unlimited numbers of these tickets because it's just streaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was literally watching it was gone. There was no chance to keep it or buy it. You know, it was, a, it was literally you come watch it and then leave again. Um, yeah. and it's not really syndication, but it was just a really fascinating... Uh, kind of discussion about what how much would you pay to watch this thing once and never ever again we'd pay $40 in person but you wouldn't pay $20 to sit at home and do the same thing it's that rubber band effect you were talking about with the reviewing it's like we were forced to do this we were forced to give up our highly leveraged creation of scarcity for value models and now that we don't have to we're pushing back and we're going back to the scarcity models to the point where they're letting less people have access to the performances than they would in the first place 
I think it, I, I disagree with how well, I agree. It is very backwards. I disagree with the fact that they are doing it. I don't think it's um, necessarily the right move. I don't even think it's going to be sustainable either. No, I imagine this will stick around for a couple of years and then they'll kind of quietly go back to uh, a hybrid between the pandemic level and the, and the pre-pandemic situation. I don't think it's a sustainable model. Um, but I think the entertainment industry, and I say this is kind of not just uh, film and television, although predominantly film and television, is scared. I think the I think Netflix, when it started, you know, it was that little kid streaming thing with all the old episodes in never mind oh look they've made a few episodes of television themselves isn't that nice um and now that kind of (laughs) from where that was which is only what if we say that was eight years ago to where we are now um where literally disney owns everything and rules your life um in terms of content and Um, there are academic courses you can take on how specifically to script for netflix's audience I, I teach my students how to do that. As part of my teaching, one of the things we now teach is how to script and write for online and online product uh, content versus terrestrial. And you're not talking how to make like a little YouTube video or, you know, a little podcast. Um, you're talking how to make actual bona fide full event, con- you know, event style television content for a digital audience and a digital way of doing it and to me that's kind of crazy and now we have we're starting to see the flip side of it and the example of this is ted lasso yes ted lasso is this wildly sleeper hit apple plus tv show that's only pardon me that's only ever been on streaming services to the point now where apple is fighting to not give up its terrestrial broadcast rights on the back end because they want to keep it exclusive to their streaming platform because it's driving signups exactly and i think the apple tv model is really fascinating i have i know very very few people that have apple tv but the shows they make are amazing yes Um, yeah the morning show one of my favorite shows to come out of the last two years and i don't think anyone's seen it i know i did a podcast on it and i know no one's gonna listen to it but it's fine because I love it. But no one's going to listen to it because no one can watch it. Mm. And I think they've done they've done really well. Well, they have achieved their objective not to give it away, not to give up those broadcast rights. Same with For All Mankind, same for Ted Lasso. You and know, now they're... we have Foundations starting as well, which has already been greenlit for a second season. Yeah. Actually, and I think it was designed for... Foundations been built to be done in 80 episodes. And they're doing 10 episodes. 80. Yeah. So watch there in three go. years, the syndication rate will drop to 80. Yeah. You can just count because, on it. So what I fully expect Apple to do is they're going to finish. And, and the morning show is the same. They only said that's going to have two or three seasons. C, um, which is another show that Apple makes, has got a very, very set arc, a very set length of time. And for all mankind, I cannot see going past season three, which is taking us into the 1990s and into present day um mythic quest another one like a more comedy uh mm-hmm. kind of procedural comedy format is exactly the same they have these very very set lengths they know how long these things are going to last this is not this is not like they're trying to make supernatural where it's going to go on forever and we're going to wish it had died many many times it's not an old dog that you need to look at and say maybe we should put it down it is very very specifically engineered show lengths and show designs and I'm fascinated to see. 
Yeah, we've literally come full circle on Babylon 5 in that Babylon 5 was one of the first big, I think the first big genre show to say, this is five seasons long. It has an arc. It will conclude. And we all went, what do you mean? We're all Star Trek The Next Generation fans. What do you mean it's going to end? What is end? And now here we are years later with Babylon 5 being rebooted continued i don't i don't know my understanding is it is a reboot a complete reboot yeah oh good grief one absolutely crammed full of grace notes strachinsky has talked about how if you've seen the original show it's just full of little little treasures for you and if you haven't there is nothing which is going to stop you getting on board but again think about generation where we are in terms of audience and consumption about that pixar model we now have generations of people who have grown up on this content who are looking for the easter eggs who expect easter eggs and it's like we're almost disappointed if we get something completely new that doesn't have it and i mean we could have a whole nother hour about the the referential culture of 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 genre and how it's a culture as much about how much you can reference as what it is you can create but and marvel are the kings of doing that I think actually Marvel is late to the game. I think Oh, they are late, definitely, but they are very they are very astute at doing it. You watch um the new What If episode the latest episode of What If um, <gasps> or any other. It was so good. It was so good. It was, but within hours there's dozens of, of you know, vloggers and YouTubers doing their 50 easter eggs you missed or 50 yeah. nods to this or lower know. decks is another great example i mean it is uh, th- there was one episode of lower decks and i think this season which was i was on the collectorship which was on literally the... did an infographic of the 75 gags in one scene yeah exactly so we have become a culture that is particularly with our our, our, our science fiction genre i think it's about science fiction and fantasy where we are so um, are holding to these kind of Easter eggs and these hints and these callbacks that it has spawned its whole other industry off to the side of it, which again feels so like it actually feels like you're living in the future. This one piece of content that is nothing to do with you spins off to this whole other. Um, I guess it's I guess it's fandom, isn't it? Really, we had the Avengers, and then we had. WandaVision, uh-huh. and now we're going to have the spin-off of Agatha's show, which will probably Why have does that a... need a spin-off? That's what they're calling it, though. They're calling it a spin-off because that character has its own interactions and old comic book issues. And here's the thing about copyright. As long as you keep flogging it every 70 years, you get to keep it, right? So that's why we constantly have to have everything remade. You can blame the mouse for that one. It's entirely Disney's fault. I mean, Disney has controlled so many things, which I know is a completely other podcast. You are very welcome to come talk to me about. But the reason <laughs> we have the, the cinema cycle, the length that we have it, and the and the VHS cycle, and then the the, t- the terrestrial TV cycle that it is, is purely dictated by Disney. Yep. And now we have our copyright is completely dictated by Disney. The reason we keep having these god awful Fantastic Four movies is because of Disney. And. It's ironic that it's being used to prevent them from having the Fantastic Four. <laughs> I kind of like that. It's it's a very, very weird time to be interacting with this. 
in any way, shape or form. And one of the things I, I try and do an awful lot is see, I try and spot the future. I try and spot how things are going to be built. And I think you're right. The, the whole kind of Easter egg sub industry thing is, is both an entirely separate fandom barnacled onto the side and valid in its own right. Mm. I, I, I hate yeah. But it's also something which feels to me like the first stage. And I think what you're going to see across the next three, three to five years is a lot of these shows and a lot of the kind of very well-known properties try and bring that kind of thing back inside the the fold that already exists your 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 history's already happened on that front surely i mean you think about it in um terms of uk shows particular well not uk shows game of thrones straight after game of thrones on sky or now tv um had throne cast oh the after the after shows but that's become de rigueur now um legacy um leverage redemption is doing it yeah um i think the walking dead have done it for years walking dead's done it mythic quest has done it um discovery did it yeah lots and lots of shows are doing the instead of a plus one we go straight to the commentary and it, it's literally, they've become fused in our minds almost so that the entire entertainment experience is both consuming the content that, you know, the creative act, and then watching the people talk about the creation of it is its own form of entertainment. Hence streaming. Yeah. I mean, that whole thing has only come into existence in the last, I don't know how that long, eight 10, maybe 10 years, maybe, but Twitch, yeah, maybe five even. And, and that is as much about that. That is the form of entertainment, which is watch me watch this thing. I mean, what the, is there's the, the, the gag in the, in Bo Bonham, Bo Bonham, Bo Bonham's last Netflix special where he does a song and then he does a reaction video of him watching the song that you've just seen. And then he does a reaction video of him watching the reaction video. And, right. and it just telescopes out into infinity. Commentary and observation of a creative act is its own form of creative act now. But it is. It is legitimately in the in 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 this decade in the twenty first century that is legitimately a form of of entertainment. And mm -hmm. in the UK, we've had that for quite a while. We've had for decades. Um, I think like Strictly Come Dancing or the Bake Off. They always have. Um, uh, some kind of like highlight shows or some reactionary shows either through the week or straight mm -hmm. after or the next day mm -hmm. they've existed in the uk for a long time i think i i obviously cannot comment if they've existed in in a u.s space but we've definitely had them in the uk i think in the u.s you, have, you, you had more of the the talk show circuit you know you would be on on letterman or you would be on snl or something like that or if you've been where our talk show sound. circuit is promotion yeah it's it's graham norton yeah here. yeah Exactly. Or Alan Carr. Yes. But our talk show is our talk show circuit is, is two people. Um, maybe, maybe, but it's promotion, not reaction. Mm. Um, that kind of reaction space has been quite different, differently used. But I think, yeah, I think streaming and syndication. Trying to link it back to the main topic. Um, <laughs> um, uh, it's basically DVD commentaries, but directly afterwards from yep. whoever. Um, but that, I think, makes it even more difficult if you do not have, if you have a global audience, you're pushing out this global content because a lot of these 
extra bits are directly online. You know, their their live chats with the cast, their Twitch, their Twitter, their I don't know, Facebook Live still happen. But you get my point. You know, they're all these um, live existing things that exist in this global space where your show itself may not actually be available in that global space. It's like that water cooler chat when you haven't seen the episode it's you're kind of inundated by all of the commentary on the thing that you don't have access to it, it it's very much that nose pressed up against the glass from the outside yeah. of the shop experience and i mean it, it places very unusual obligations on you um and weirdly it forces you to train your algorithms i spent I had to spend a lot of time with youtube across the last eight weeks because I was regularly being served a couple of YouTube accounts that were essentially posting full episodes of What If in 30-second chunks Yeah, inside 24 hours of transmission. And that's a level of nuance that this stuff just doesn't have yet, where you'll be served things which, you know, the data which has been sold to 800 different providers says you'd be interested in, but it doesn't have the ability to say when you want information mm. or at least not yet i mean i i combat that by having completely separate youtube accounts that i log into and don't log into um that are curated differently for for shows and not for shows which is now i say it out loud kind of insane like a part-time um, job that sounds almost like a cottage industry to me it does but i mean you, we talk about this globalization and pumping content out um for me the biggest one that did this was the walking dead who had i can't remember if it was an end this was when i stopped watching the walking dead because it pissed me off so much <laughs> um it was either a mid-season or an end of season but it was you know it was a big finale episode it was a big finale episode and they'd um posted a tweet um, with an image from it was like a final shot of the show a character had died another character was holding them in their arms and they tweeted that at the minute the credits rolled on its live t you know on its, its initial tx on the east coast which then meant people in the west coast who were two hours behind three hadn't three hadn't yet seen it oh. but already knew the outcome let alone an international syndicate audience who were still you know eight to twelve hours behind and to me, that was just, it didn't even occur to me that this image would, that I would be spoiled at that time because it hadn't even finished airing in America at that point. It hadn't done its plus one. It hadn't even, it hadn't even finished airing in the whole country before they'd kind of spoilt their own audience globally. And I think for me, that was a real highlight on how companies clearly don't get it. Um, and how kind of the the TV industry has still got so far to go in terms of its understanding of its audience and syndication and and the globalization of our connectivity and our global connectivity. Yeah, no, I agree. And then you compare it to something like how much time Lucasfilm spent in the run up to the conclusion of the most recent trilogy and how they were like, please don't spoil things. This is the release date. Because we're going to do it ourselves. We're going to spoil it for you ourselves by just being terrible. Sorry. <laughs> Palpatine's back. Woo, surprise. No build up. Yeah. Sorry, carry on. Yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, part of me wants to have empathy because when you are, when you are in an industry which has a news cycle measured in the attention span of nerds, you know, microseconds, uh, you have to kind of jump when you get an opportunity. 
but there's just no appreciation for if you're not in the tent when that happens. Also, there's, there's a really interesting flip side to the whole microsecond nerd attention thing, which is that, especially in the UK, fandom never forgets. And, never and forgets. The, the, most ever. Visceral, the most visceral example you can see for that is, you know, Chris Chimnall's time on Doctor Who, where he's committed the cardinal sin of producing three average to pretty good seasons of Doctor Who, but we must never forget he did bad work over a decade ago. Oh, well, if if you want the, the, the quintessential geek stigmata, Firefly. Firefly, 16 episodes over a decade ago, and it's still cited as a paragon. So what I find interesting, this is this is this may make you feel old, I apologize. Uh I am not old enough to have seen Firefly when it first aired. I was too young to be to know enough about what I wanted to watch to know to watch Firefly. And yet people go on and on and on about this show that honestly I've tried to watch so many times and it's just crap. <laughs> it just doesn't work. There's a reason it was cancelled. But its syndication, the way it was shown, yeah. gave it this cultural phenomenon behemoth attitude that it just doesn't deserve in terms of actual quality content. Because it ties into you know, the, the, the phrase Marguerite used, I mean, you know, geek stigmata. And Firefly is, is one of those wounds. The other one is Doctor Who. There are elements of UK fandom that love nothing more than the fact that Doctor Who was cancelled because that's a scab that you can go over over and over and over again. And but do you not think there's there's an occasion, I'm going to say this very carefully, sometimes shows need to go away for a while before yes. they come back? Okay. I think Doctor Who is looking a bit leathery now and possibly needs a couple of, <laughs> a, a, a couple of um, you know, it needs some time in cryostasis to remember how lovely it is for it to come back. But that's an also a very, very unique UK perspective. The idea that a show not only gets to come back, but deserves to come back and is expected to go back and is expected to be rested and come back. That, that, that doesn't happen outside the US. The only thing that that happens to in the US is soap operas. If, if, if a show stops or it stops performing, it is canceled. And then, you know, barring a miracle, that's it. It's gone. It doesn't come back. Leverage is one of those miracles. And that, that show has been so beloved by such a vocal fan base for so long of which I am absolutely a part <laughs> that it was able to be literally resurrected in a way that is expected with Doctor Who in the UK but is catastrophic in the US. It just doesn't happen. I mean, I would say Doctor Who is actually a really good example of a show that is completely designed to never die, just in its mere form of creation. Um, but if you're writing Doctor Who now as a, as a concept, so our lead character, same with James Bond, you're creating a show and you're going, this person is never going to die. They're just going to change the way they look and we're never going to acknowledge it. Or it's a big thing that they've got a new face, but they're the same person. If you punted that as a as a as a concept now, as a you know a story deck or whatever, everyone would go, that sounds shit. You can't do that. That doesn't work. It's it's weird that these longevity kind of properties, particularly Doctor Who and and James Bond, have kind of been 
designed to last forever or um, I'd say unintentionally but before a time when lasting forever was actually a thing and now it's becoming a thing with the Marvel properties because we're going to start bringing in the who is the I mean we've got it already we have the new Captain America we're going to have the new Iron Man the new Hawkeye the new Hawkeye you know but we've already done that I I don't think that's fair to say we're doing it now. We have already done that once. We did that with the X-Men. We literally recast the X-Men and made a load more films that did the same story. And that was Fox even before Marvel. And But that opens up another really interesting issue, mm. which is the, the, the perception of legitimacy. The, the Fox X-Men movies have never been viewed as, as, you know, proper X-Men movies. And in some cases, that's justifiable because a few of them are rubbish. But there's this immense desire to have them back in the fold at Marvel. And that ties into something which, again, this is something we could do another full hour plus on. Deadpool? The Deadpool. <laughs> and and the, the, you know, something which I saw someone describe recently as the era of intellectual property adulation. And when one of the major TV unions in the US voted to strike um, when Iatsi voted to strike a couple of weeks ago, some poor, and I use that word advisedly, someone became the main character of geek Twitter in that way that you never should. This guy tweeted, oh, no. wait, does, does this is this going to impact on Marvel movies? Because you wouldn't like me when I'm angry, and posted an image of the Hulk. And it was like that moment in Airplane where people line up to beat mm-hmm. up a hysterical passenger. He just had 24 hours of people going, son, just don't. And you've, I, I think what we're starting to get to is this thing where because this stuff is so readily available and because there's so much of it all the time, people are losing sight. And I don't mean everybody, but there is an element of fandom as any fandom, which is losing sight of the simple reality that this stuff is work. This is a job. And yep. that, and that you need to be paid fairly and work safely for your time. And if that means that your next Hulk movie is going to be six months late, but no one's going to die, if you complain about that, that's on you. I mean, we're in that situation to a, to a much lesser extent, but stuff is been delayed or shortened or changed because of effects of the pandemic. You think um, the morning show again completely had to stop production and was delayed because of the pandemic. Discovery for Star Trek is late. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of shows have been altered um, either a lot um, or completely frozen and restarted again. We are having a bit of a TV drought. It doesn't. It may not feel like it, but we are going to have a couple of years where there is maybe not the output that was expected when we're going to be relying even more heavily on syndicated older shows or big property shows that have you know existed and are available to us, which I think is only going to make this situation worse. Mm. in the long and, run and that opens up yet another interesting possibility which is you're, you're going to start seeing some of these shows become economically viable to bring back i mean we're about to hit a miniature cluster of prestige u.s drama being revived uh dexter's new season arrives in a couple of weeks there's a criminal minds update and criminal minds finished i think under three years ago which is in pre-production CSI is CSI's back. Yeah. You know? Did that ever go away? This is the Las Vegas crew, though. The original crew is being rebooted, revamped. I don't know. Or well, from what I can understand, it's two of the main characters coming back and a lot of very young people going, I'm sorry, sir, are you lost? Yeah. <laughs> That'll be fun. <laughs> but you say that 
We did that with the X-Files. The X-Files came back briefly. Oh. Yeah, but and that was everybody's oh. response, right? Uh, I know. You, well, that, yeah, that, that gap was perfect. <laughs> um, you, you know you are in trouble when one of your two stars, and by far the more popular and bankable one, when asked if they're coming back for another season, goes, no, and I'm leaving the other show on as well. Bye. And she's so brilliant in sex education. Oh, my goodness. I could talk forever about sex education and its stylization of Americanized whales because they've hit it so perfectly. (laughs) It's true. Uh, I just, I, I, I can never remember the, the, the guy's name, but the lead actor in that is, is, is just insanely good. He, he does, he's like a, a human boimler. He does that kind <laughs> of ah thing so well. I assumed they, they modeled them on each other. They came out the factory and one just went to cartoons and one went into live action and that's how they were made. <laughs> that's, that they, they came out the actor factory at the same time. He is, if they ever did they ever did live action Lower Decks, which I can't believe hasn't already been slated for a 2023 release, um, he would absolutely be be real life Boimer. Please don't do a live action Lower Decks. It would no. lose its magic. No, no, I, I, I want to go directly onto Prodigy, and I think it's wonderful that they are embracing animation as and kids' audiences. It, it's that generational mm-hmm. appeal again. You know, I I'm glad Janeway's back. Oh, with her coffee. With her coffee, I cannot wait for Prodigy to come to, to have access to it. I cannot the, wait. The, the, the fact that Captain Janeway is back as an emergency holographic adult on that show just fills me with joy. I'm very excited. Mainly because of all the captains. I think she is the one you'd least want to be available in an emergency. What should we do? Our crewmates are now merged into one and they want to have their, you know, human rights to be ignored. Class as one person. Split them apart. Take them (laughs) apart. I need the people. What's that? We've murdered whole civilizations. Never mind. On we go. I love Janeway, don't get me wrong, but I definitely think she had interesting choices in a crisis compared to maybe Jean-Luc Picard or, you know, other other captains. Um, and that's why I love her. I, I will never, ever forget the end of the... We've gone past Warp 10 and now we're both Salamanders episode. Where, <laughs> and I, I, this is how it plays in my head. And I know this, I know this isn't what was on air, but they find them. And there's, I think it's Tuvok and Chakotay. And there's some dialogue about, so can we turn them back? Yeah. All right, then. And in my head, Tuvok literally turns to camera and goes, so, this happened. Roll in credit. <laughs> um, but Star Trek um, has, has I think, done really well. Obviously, it got saved by syndication. Yeah. But even its new properties are working really well. I think they've got a really tight uh, deal with Amazon Prime in the UK, so we haven't got these big gaps. Although we did for Lower Decks Season 1, but that appears to have all been sorted now. Yeah. Um, you know, we we are we don't have Paramount Plus or whatever the hell they've now created as their own streaming site, um, but we are getting it consistently, and that doesn't mean that means you don't have to resort to to alternative, uh, less ethical methods of finding the content um, that you would pay for, but they are not allowing you to. Yeah. Um, and I think uh, that's so there was a show. I don't know how if either of you know the show. Uh, in the USA, it was called Motherlands. In the UK, it was called Fort Salem. Oh, Fort- yeah. Oh, I love that. Door Fort Salem. And I need season two. And they've had it for weeks and months. And I don't know when we're going to get it. 
we, we've had it for two weeks. It's on <gasps> the iPlayer. What? It's on iPlayer, apparently. Excuse it's on me, iPlayer. I just need to jump myself very, a little notes. This is very good news. Thank you. <laughs> but uh, I was in very much the same situation. The first season, I think I inhaled up my nostril. Uh, I know. it was great. Um, and just everything about it was right. Um, and I have a whole episode planned on Fort Salem in the future. But uh, obviously, I call it Fort Salem. In the USA, it's called Motherland. But we have a show called Motherland in the UK, which is about three single parents struggling to look after their kids it has a very different vibe mm. um so it's fort salem here motherland in america um, which again is a, a syndication and streaming issue they've had to literally change the whole name of a show they've done that with leverage as well it's le- in germany redemption here yeah in the yeah. uk it's leverage redemption it's leverage 2.0 in germany and i think it's just leverage in the u.s so it does it's just it sometimes like I'm sure event it was the Avengers in some uh, locations and the Avengers assemble in other locations as well. Mm-hmm. So it does happen. Fort Salem is just the one that is most notable for me because they've literally redone the title sequence to to com- like they've actually put effort into it rather than just you know. Interesting. It's got a new name. That reminds me of House actually, and how um, in I think every market other than Europe, House's opening credits were set to teardrop by Massive Attack. Mm-hmm. And that was not licensable in Europe, so there was, there, an entirely new piece of music had to be composed. Interesting. That yeah. is interesting. Terrestrial rights, man, they're weird. They are weird. Um, but yeah, uh, well, I'm glad I've made your your evening. Hopefully, by telling you that Fort Salem is oh, available on the BBC iPlayer. But now I have to choose between starting Leverage Redemption season two or Fort Salem season two. So you've actually presented me with a horrible moral conundrum. And of the an- the answer is Fort Salem, because that's the problem. Obviously, when you when you don't have then access to something, it's not been syndicated. That's not there. You then can't even search for the show itself, because the latest stuff that's going to come up in your in your search histories are the new seasons, which then yeah, becomes quite awkward. We have a good friend in the U.S. who's a um, who's a very big Fort Salem fan, who was excitedly live tweeting along, and I'm like, I can't. Watch- I can't. I want to, but I can't. Um, but yes, uh, uh, the BBC have just kind of dropped the entire season. Uh, I think it was on the twenty third of September, with just out without telling anyone. Just it kind of just appeared. Vintage BBC. Here you go. What is it? Genre, isn't it? Yep. But you do know that it was shown on terrestrial uh, BBC Two at eleven fifty five at night. Grief. Good grief. So obviously they're expecting no one to watch this show. Um, weird. But yeah, that's, I think, a really a, an example of where syndication again has been done really badly. And we keep getting these yeah. kind of examples of where it doesn't work. I think it's important that we uh, talk just once about a case where it has worked really well. Love it or hate it, I'm afraid we have to talk about Friends. <laughs> what was it, the highest grossing single property on Netflix in 2019? Like they paid it is the really- show... The show that will never die, however much I wish it would. They paid like eighty million or something it was ridiculous. An insane amount of cash to hold on to it for another two, another couple of years. Yeah. Well, so in again the UK, um, Friends basically aired on E. Well, it had its actual. It was on Channel Four originally, but you're talking pre-internet, so it wasn't a big thing. That it was a bit later, 
Um, and then it was basically reruns on E4. It was basically the main content of E4 as a channel was Friends reruns and Big Brother live. Quality channel here, quality quality. Uh, if you'd been in the US, it would have been Friends and Frasier. Oh, well, they, they'd have Frasier on like before 9am and then it would go to just Friends and then it moved to Comedy Central and it must have sat on Comedy Central for the best part of a decade, if not more. It was a big, big deal that it came off terrestrial television that friends was no longer on terrestrial television was moving to cable and then it was a massive huge deal again that it was going to netflix and just the fact that we are so obsessed with friends which is honestly kind of a terrible television show i am not obsessed with friends no you're not no i am not no i remember how big of a thing it is i know obviously it launched or elevated a lot of people's careers but for me, it's like, how do these schlubby people living in these very expensive New York apartments afford all of this? What am I missing? I don't think it has aged particularly well. I think it has aged visually very well, because as we know, it was shot on... Widescreen. Yeah, it was shot on film, actual film and widescreen film at that. So it is technically um, in 4K, so we can watch it still. And I think that's one of the reasons why Friends has stood the test of time much better than Frasier or Seinfeld or the original Sex and the City is because they were all on that kind of four to three, which now looks really terrible on our kind of 4K televisions and Mm -hmm. our big, our big, you know, our TVs are so much bigger than they used to be. These properties don't scale up well. And Star Trek has the same problem. The original yeah. seasons of Buffy, you know, none of it looks good. That crappy four to three in the middle with the on on the on, you know, your forty inch television or whatever, it doesn't look good. Oh, th- those early seasons of Buffy that were shot on video, I think, look appalling now. So yeah, any any final uh, thoughts, words, opinions you'd like to give on syndication and streaming, or or syndication in the age of streaming? There is the potential for this to be that rarest of things, which is a capitalist mechanism which ultimately becomes a means of creating good art. And I am really curious to see whether the precedent, which I think may have just been set with a show called Manifest, is picked up by other things. Well, Manifest ran for three seasons, was kind of did kind of okay, and then it was put on Netflix and just went absolutely crazy. And Netflix have now resurrected it after it was cancelled after its third year and given it a mammoth, I believe, 25-episode final season and a functionally unlimited runtime. They basically said, get it to us when when you're ready. And I'll be really curious to see whether that becomes almost the evolution of the Star Trek model that we touched on at the start of the, the discussion of this is a way that you can bring stories into land or this is a way that you can do that thing with intellectual property, where instead of it just servicing an IP, so you know the, mouse, the house of mouse always gets paid, you can do the thing which good art has to do, which is speak to its time and reassure and inspire its audience. Yeah, I guess streaming um, gives way to more genre niche nuance and counterculture, I guess. Counterculture can become capitalist in the age of streaming, and I guess Manifest almost does that. You know, It was a, a little show that no one was interested in, and then when capitalism took it, it worked better and now it's getting finished. But I find it really interesting. Netflix, who is so notorious for cancelling shows without actually ending them, is actually picking up a show to end it. Um, right? So weird. You know, we're, yeah. here's looking at you, Sensei. 
and uh, <laughs> and Lucifer um, and well, just so many, so many shows. I think Manifest is currently on Now TV in the UK. Hmm. I'm sure. Is it is Manifest the one about the plane? Is yeah, it the, the not lost wax. lost? It, it, yeah, it, it's, it, that's exactly it. You have brilliantly summed up the entire premise of the show in those words. Fortnite for TV and not lost. Not lost lost. lost yeah. Yes, exactly. So it is. It is. Am I right? Thinking it is the it's the not lost lost that looks like lost but isn't lost because it's found a home on Netflix. What if Oceanic Flight Eight One Five actually landed basically fine, just a bit late? That's the show. Yeah, and. Um, <laughs> I, I'm I'm quite early doors with it. I have a couple of friends who most of the way through, and my understanding is it wobbles a lot. There is a season where they go, "Ooh, did God steal the plane?" And the answer is no. Uh, and then it does some really fun time travel stuff. That's I might actually watch it. I might not because it still looks like not lost. Lost. It looks like it looks like discount lost with the little thumbnail bargain bin lost <laughs> it is wish.com lost wish.com lost okay so so we think manifest might be the way things go is they start on they almost get piloted on terrestrial channels and then are taken by streaming services to flourish as actual properties yeah i i think the lines between terrestrial and streaming and syndication it, it's pretty much all up for grabs now if if the story is good, if a following is committed... Well, that's two very then... different things. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. It is two very different things. But when... I mean, we could do a whole two hours about fan entitlement and, you know, the demands of properties and the obligations to an audience. Expect You know, this expectation that there are obligations. Um but I think we're at a point where it's all it's all to play for in terms of format, length, where you start, where you go, what your ultimate goal is. And ultimately, for me, that means that the story is, is going to continue to take the center and it's being uh, all of those rules that existed around where well, you have to have 100 episodes and your episodes have to be this long or there have to be this many of them are really out the window now. Um, I mean, selling a thing is a whole other process and conversation, but from the consumption end, there's just this wider variety of forms and lengths and platforms now so that you everything you consume isn't coming in 60-minute chunks with, you know, three-minute commercial breaks. It... it there's a lot more flexibility. Yeah, I think I think we're definitely seeing that. And I think, um, as you highlighted earlier, the Scarlett Johansson and Disney um, legal kerfuffle, which has been settled outside of court, really kind of, I think, I think you can drop a pin on that and say this is the start of where things start to get interesting in terms of yeah. um, <clears throat> streaming and syndication and rights and where things go and how they happen and what actually that turns into and yeah i think there's i think we are i think uh companies are desperately trying to claw back some of the headway that was made during the pandemic yeah you know we had this point where stuff was simultaneously available to purchase or rent and out at the cinema and a lot of mm -hmm. that's now been backpedaled by some companies 
for better or worse. But I think we're going to see a really interesting Mm -hmm. where does that go? it for um, another episode of the narrative labyrinth i want to really really thank uh, my two guests today um do you have any parting words or anything you'd like to shamelessly plug yeah i have a couple of things and thank you so much for having us on this is absolutely great. great conversation um we run a uh, award nominated pop culture newsletter called the full lid which um is published every friday at 5 p.m in the uk in the uk and it is basically here are some things we've seen this week which were good uh, we cover comics and podcasting, television, and games, and movies, and, and movies, and, and occasionally catch up. It's been a couple of years since I did a catch up recipe. I should probably do one again. And um, more recently, or in addition to that, uh, I do critical monographs for a company called Obverse Books. Um, I did one for them on Day of the Doctor, the Doctor Who 50th anniversary episode, and later this year I have one of their first Star Trek line called Gold Archive coming out on the Discovery episode through the Valley of Shadows. I don't know if I have anything to plug. We do own four podcasts. We do own four podcasts. Yeah. Uh, gosh, it's been a while since I've talked about them like this. Um, so we run Escape Artists, which publishes Escape Pod, which is the original science fiction short fiction podcast, along with Podcastle for Fantasy, Pseudopod for Horror, and Cast of Wonders for YA. Just under 3,000 episodes. Just under 3,000 episodes. Holy about shit. All free- yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, we just ran Podcastle seven hundred and Escape Pod eight hundred. Findings in place for Pseudopod eight hundred. Yeah, and Pseudopod eight hundred is coming up. Yeah, it's, uh, podcasting was not invented in two thousand fourteen with serial. Let's just leave it at that. <gasps> Surely not. I know. Really? Right? Good lord. Podcasting no, existed really? before times. Um, no, I know. <laughs> Well, thank you for coming on episode four of the Narrative Labyrinth. <laughs> <laughs> There's two series You just have to get to ten. You just have to get to ten. Ten podcast episodes is the syndication dead, uh, cutoff of a podcast. If you've made ten episodes, then you're in the top one percent of all podcasts that have ever been created. <laughs> um, thank you so much. You have been absolutely um, amazing uh coming on and chatting about syndication the thing that i couldn't find any information on the internet so i decided to make my own information on the internet um don't forget uh to uh catch this episode and all my other episodes of the narrative labyrinth um on all good and pretty average podcasting platforms including apple alexa spotify and google play uh you have been listening to the narrative labyrinth thank you very much to my guests uh goodbye